we simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States undetected, undocumented, unchecked. And complete the dang fence. This bill that we will sign today is not a revolutionary bill. Cast down your bucket where you are. We come from France. And I am, you know, adamantly against illegal immigrants. They're coming in by the thousands. Just unbelievable. A wall is an immorality. Who are you rooting for? Those masters of the universe are at it again. You maniac! You blew it up! Welcome to Parsing Immigration Policy, the podcast of the Center for Immigration Studies. This is Mark Krikorian, Executive Director of the Center. And we've recorded this uh, a couple days early, but we are going to be posting this on 5-11, May 11, when the Title 42 orders allowing expulsion of people based on uh, COVID is going to be lifted. Now, it's going to be lifted at the end of the day, like midnight on Thursday, the 11th. So really, Friday will be kind of the first day without the orders in place. But to give us a sense of what's going on down there, what does it look like, what do we think might happen, Todd Benzman from the center is actually down in Mexico on the other side of the border across from South Texas. And we're going to talk to Todd about what he's seeing and what he thinks is likely to happen. So, Todd, thanks for um, pulling over on the side of the road before you go and interview some people at a uh, huge migrant camp on the Mexican side of the border. But what are your first impressions? What does it look like is likely to happen once Title 42 ends this week? I'm sensing a lot of eagerness among the immigrants that I've been interviewing for any hint that the Title VIII expedited removal process will actually let immigrants into the country, admit them, either release them, or provide some kind of a pathway into the United States. And when that happens, they're telling me that they will cross illegally. They will not wait here for the CBP-1, the online app that you can kind of pre-legalize under humanitarian parole and then be allowed in over the bridge. Most of them, or all of them, are in line for that right now as the final hours of Title 42 kind of tick by. But they're also saying that they will rush in the second that they see people are getting access to um, the interior. Right. So, I mean, in other words, it's not yet really like the Oklahoma land rush where everybody's waiting for midnight on the 11th and then somebody fires a starting pistol and they all start pouring over. First of all, the numbers have been going up anyway, but they're going to be waiting to see, do some of the more adventurous ones who cross anyway, do they get released or not before everybody else decides what to do, right? That's right. That's the vanguards. There will be vanguards. I've just come from the bus station in Matamoros, which is just a few blocks from this huge camp. And bus after bus after bus is just pulling in and filled with immigrants coming here to Matamoros. They said, and so this, the camp is just filling up and expanding, expanding by the hour today. And when I talk to them at the bus station and ask them why they're coming, they're saying, because we think we're going to get in and we're going to cross and be released 
after this Title 42 goes away. They're they're optimistic. Mm-hmm. I think it'll take a little bit of time after Title 42 goes away for news to trickle back as to what's actually happening. Right. And you know, they all have cell phones, they're all plugged in and but right now, uh, lots of the the ones that I've met are are unwilling to cross right now. Texas has done a few things on the other side that have dissuaded them. And they're just saying, I'm in, in line for CBP-1. We're going to stay in line for CBP-1. But if we see that their Americans are letting them in, we're gone. We're not waiting for CBP-1. So we'll see. Just for some background for listeners, most people I think will probably know this, but Title 42 is the public health measure related to COVID that enabled the Border Patrol to just bounce people back across the border without hearings or asylum claims or any of that stuff. And it was the only immigration-related measure from the Trump administration the Biden people kept in place, even though they used it for a smaller and smaller share of illegals. And so once that goes away this week, then they deal with the illegal border crossers the way they were always dealt with before, which is under Title Eight of the U.S. Code, which is the immigration law. I mean, they never really referred to it that way before because there was no Title 42 to compare it to. But when people talk about Title Eight, what they mean is just regular immigration law. So, Todd, what you were saying is that if they see that the claims of the administration that they're going to get tough and crack down and all the rest of it don't pan out, they're all going to come over anyway. And as I understand it, there's all the loopholes were in place before Title 42 happened, before COVID, are still there. So it's not clear what going back to what this administration considers regular immigration enforcement is actually going to, who's it going to dissuade? It seems to me they're still going to be letting people go, don't you think? Yes. I mean, if you read the fine print of the proposed regulation, right. That the administration put up for, which is essentially their policy. They, they're saying we're following the proposed regulation. Right. Says that the administration will respect the Flores settlement. Right. For example, which is the, you know, under 20 days, we, we release you from detention if you've got kids, family with kid, family units. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, the administration's already announced that they will not even be detaining families even for the 20 days. So. So it seems like there's a clear path for anybody in a family unit to just cross right in and you're you're in. What are they what are you going to do? What are they going to do? They're just going to claim asylum. They're not detaining them. And the thing is even with people who don't have kids with them, Mexico has agreed to take some of them back apparently. There was an agreement they reached with the Mexican government last week, I believe it was. But we don't know the terms of that. I mean, at some point, Mexico may say, okay, well, we've taken, you know, we've taken as many as we're going to take this month. It's your problem now. And at that point, this administration is going to have to just let them go because they don't have detention space and they've been uh, reducing the ability to detain illegal immigrants, the capacity. Right. And I think that there's a certain amount of, I don't know if you, what you call it, bluff Yeah. on the American side. For example, the... Title 42, as it's applied to Haitians, and even to some Venezuelans, I just about an hour ago met a Venezuelan who was Title 42'd all the way back to Colombia under a new agreement. He was one of the ones that, so they actually did send a plane load or two back to Colombia. 
Right. Interesting. Uh, and now he's turned around and he is back. I just met him at the bus station. And he's back because he thinks that the Americans are going to start letting him in and not doing Title 42, not doing expedited removals all the way back. And then in Reynosa, which is about 40 miles upstream from here, there are about 15,000 Haitians right. who are all stacked up there who, when they got 42'd, likely they might end up in Port-au-Prince, all the way back to Port-au-Prince, which is... There's really no nightmare greater for a Haitian than to actually end up all the way back in Port-au-Prince. So they are, were all staying put until they can see whether the families and the unaccompanied minors and everybody else is actually getting in under Title VIII. I think that if they see Title VIII allowing some Haitians in and nobody's getting sent back to Port-au-Prince, right. I think we're... They're, they're willing to go. They're willing to cruise over. It's going to take a few days. It might even take a week after Title 42 to finally get, it, get the answer that they're looking for. Sure, right. Your point about both the Haitians and the Venezuelans is important because very few, if any, of those people are actually coming from Venezuela or Haiti. In other words, the Venezuelan guy you mentioned has been living in Colombia, and that's, there's actually a couple million of them living in Colombia. They've got documents, work permits. They're living in Ecuador and Peru and Brazil and elsewhere. So they're not coming from Venezuela for the most part. And the Haitians, and this is something you've been reporting on for a couple of years now, most of them are people who have been living for years in Brazil or Chile. In fact, some of them have children born there. They have passports for the kids. And so there's this asylum rule the administration has put out which is a watered-down version of what the Trump administration did, saying that if you passed through another country and didn't apply for asylum, and this would apply, obviously, to people who were living in these places, then you have what they call a rebuttable presumption against getting asylum, which means you can still rebut it, and they have all these exceptions in place. Liz Jacobs on our staff, our colleague, has written that it looks like the exceptions are so big there they'll swallow up the rule. So I think that goes to your point about it may even take a week for people to see whether this administration is basically making all the exceptions that they put into their rules or whether they're actually following They're sort of how tough they are, basically. And that's not something they're going to know at 12.01 on Friday. That is going to take a while, one way or the other, for people to get information about what's happening. Right. And where, where the whole thing just goes south is if the infrastructure that the administration has built on the U.S. side, you know, with all the asylum officers and the, the, they're surging judges in for the appeals, if that gets overwhelmed, if it takes, starts to take too long for these appeals to make their way through that system, then I think as of today, all the facilities are at 150%. So they can't hold them. Already. Yes, already. And so they should not be able to hold anybody for the length of time necessary for the appeal to the judges even, let alone anything after the judges. In which case they're preparing for what they call, I put this in air quotes because we're on a podcast, safe street releases. <laughs> safe street releases, which is just a way of saying we can't handle any of these people. They're just going to have to wander around until we can get to them later. Right. 
at some point. And, you know, I think that the administration is preparing for a lot of safe street releases. Time is on the immigrant side here right. very much. Interesting. Anything that they could say or do that would just delay, that would appeal, the rebuttals, even a week right. or two weeks or any amount of time at all. And they should start to have to release them, and that news will get back to this camp. Right. And this camp should empty out. Interesting. I would see this camp emptying out. And that's one camp on the border. I mean, you're at the eastern end of the border, basically. The border goes all the way to San Diego. There's 2,000 miles of what you're seeing. Obviously, South Texas is probably the epicenter of it just because it's the closest place on the border that you get to from Central America, if that's how you're crossing through here. But this is the kind of thing that's happening all over. But since we're talking about Texas, and Texas accounts for more than half of the border, about 1,200 miles out of the roughly 2,000 of the border with Mexico, what has Texas, the, the state government of Texas, been doing to try to keep a lid on what's already starting to be an overflow problem down there? Well, I was here just a couple of weeks ago on the Brownsville side right? and watched about 2,500 Venezuelans, mostly Venezuelans, just cross over and get processed in. And I saw a whole bunch of them at the McAllen bus station with their personal recognizance parole papers. They were just all being released. Right. A lot of them were being released, and that's what was compelling or you know incentivizing more and more to come through. And Texas saw that and strung a lot of razor wire all along those areas where they were crossing from this camp. They were crossing from this camp that I'm at now. Just to be clear, was it razor wire to block up gaps in the fence? What was the razor wire? Where was it? What was it doing specifically? Yeah, the razor wire is just 25 yards up the riverbank. Yeah. And it's multiple, multiple layers and it's stacked high. Hmm. And it's difficult to, I mean, I guess you could throw a blanket over or kind of cut it or whatever and get through that way. But, but it's for most of these migrants in this camp, it was just too much. And they're right. citing that for saying, we're not going over right now because there's all that razor wire over there. And then the, there's somebody on the other side speaking to these people through uh, bullhorns. Right, And they're telling the Venezuelans that they are being air deported all the way back to Caracas. Right. Wow. I think that's disinformation. I do not believe that there are any kind of significant numbers of flights, ICE air flights back to Caracas. There might be one or two, but, right, right. but that has spread through the camp and sent the fear of God through a lot of the people in this camp. Just the bullhorn disinformation. But I don't know, between the bullhorn disinformation and the razor wire, if that's going to be enough to hold this tide back once they realize, especially the families, that you know they're getting through. Right. And also, remember, the, the proposed rule regulation explicitly exempts unaccompanied minors from all of it. Of so course, yeah. The pathway is just completely clear also for unaccompanied minors and we're that's no small number of 350,000 just in the last couple of years. Right. Because they were exempted from Title 42. So, of course, they poured in. And there was something else that the Texans did that's worth mentioning here. They 
started truck inspections on the International Bridge. Remember, all those thousands of Venezuelans were just giving up on CBP-1 and crossing in, and most of them were getting through, allowed in, and the Abbott administration, Governor Greg Abbott, ordered truck inspections, 100% of every truck. And the trucks blocked, backed up for five, six, seven miles in this line for five days. And it caused so much economic pain for the Mexicans that the governor of Mexico went to Abbott and said, okay, what do you want? And they cut some kind of a security deal where the state police over here are supposed to be you know, blocking and deterring and breaking up groups and running operations and that sort of thing. Right. But I have to tell you, I have not, I've only been, this is my first day here and I'm not seeing any evidence that that's actually happening yet. It may be happening uh, in other parts of the city, but, but supposedly the Mexican state police are supposed to be working to block and tour over here. I just, I don't know if that's actually going to be happening. Right. And actually this is something that apparently, um, Texas had tried earlier, I guess it was last year, because you had written about it. Basically, it's a political tactic. It's kind of like what Trump did, I mean, the same idea as what Trump did to get Mexico to agree to the old Remain in Mexico program that Biden did away with by saying, we're going to you know, slap tariffs on your imports if you don't cooperate, and they cooperated. And so what Abbott is doing is a smaller version of it, because power is limited here, but doing safety inspections basically of every truck, giving each individual truck trying to come across the border basically a safety colonoscopy. Like you said, it backs up traffic and that then causes political pressure on the Mexican governor's side. This was the uh, Matamoros is in Tamaulipas state, right? This Mexican state of Tamaulipas? Yes. Yes, that's right. We don't know if Abbott has done this yet elsewhere along the border because there's Chihuahua State, which is where Juarez is at the other end of the Texas border. I think he did it there last year as well, right? In December, December was the last time that, that they did an effective bridge closure. Right. When all of the migrants were pouring over and in, into the, there, there were safe street releases again there. And you had thousands of migrants just wandering all around. They swamped the system completely. Had to put them in the airport for, you know, it was cold outside. Right. And I was in the Juarez area at El Paso just a few weeks ago. And, you know, getting back to the razor wire situation, which you, you wouldn't think is that, that, that it's that effective. But I was watching, you know, thousands of Venezuelans just pour over the little trickle of river that the Rio Grande is over there. Right. And then they were being processed into the country. That's why they were coming. Because it, it was working. Of course. But the Texas National Guard was working the whole time feverishly. Every day. I was there for day after day, and they were trying to they were stringing this razor wire. Right. And the immigrants would have to hike each day several hundred yards more than the previous day, and then walk around it and get around it. And I see. I was told that the strategy of that was to get that razor wire all the way to the port of entry at Isleta. Right. And that the Mexican cartel, I think it's the La Linea cartel over there, would then have control of that part of the river and they would have to pay and it would be a, a deterrent. And that section of the razor wire has been 
completed. Interesting. So I think that a lot of that that cross border river cross river traffic right there may have been deterred. We're not seeing those thousands crossing there anymore. So it'll be interesting to see whether you know how people are actually going to physically cross. Right. I presume that that razor wire is defeatable. I've seen some video with blankets thrown over it, lots and lots of blankets, and they just crawl over the blankets. They also could just cross the river and just sit on the Texas side and wait right. to be taken care of, to be brought in. So, uh, you know, one thing I saw just a- across the river from this camp is razor wire, just tons and tons of thick razor wire everywhere. But then they built a gate <laughs> where that opens. Right. And so I'm wondering, what are they, get- they going to use that gate for exactly over there? Interesting. You know? That does highlight the uh, issue about the Texas border versus the rest of the border because New Mexico, Arizona, and California, it's almost all just straight line land border. There's a little bit in Arizona of a river that crosses back into the U.S., that sort of thing. But most of it is just straight lines and it's land. And so you can put a wall right up, not maybe on the border, but a foot or two back from the border. Whereas in Texas, you just can't do that because of the river. And so, I mean, I think it's entirely possible you're going to see, depending on how things work out, you're going to see large numbers of people coming across and just camping on our side of the river, but on uh, the other side or whatever, I don't know how you put it, but on the Mexican facing side of whatever fencing there is. And then what are we going to do about it? It creates like right. that situation you wrote about in Del Rio when you visited there with all the Haitians there. Right. And I'm told that there is a, a, such an encampment that is formed at Juarez on the U.S. side, just on the U.S. side. Wow. As of yesterday, there were five to 700 that had gathered there. And Border Patrol was gradually processing them all in. There was a, a significant remnant of, quote, safe street releases in El Paso. They're being cleaned up right now, the operation to get them all off, all of the rest of them off the street. But then, you know, when you read about uh, the accounts of that, those people are all being paroled into the United States. Right. They're getting what they want. They're getting what they want, and they selfie back to the to the people on, on this side. and Right. I can just tell you, like, as a general matter from speaking to, I don't know, maybe 30 different immigrants between last night and this morning, that there's like a collective, everybody is on the edge of their seat waiting for any whisper of a word that they're letting them in under Title VIII. Right. And then they're telling me, I had a group uh, last night, they're all in CBP-1. Right. I said, raise your hand if, if you hear that they're letting amend under Title Eight that you're crossing illegally, and every one of them just raise their hand immediately and say, yeah, we're bailing on the CBP-1 business. You know, nobody wants to wait. One other interesting thing, I, I'm not sure what to make of this, but it is just an interesting point, is that in the hotel that I'm here, uh, staying at here, is filled with Kyrgyzstanis, <laughs> the former Soviet Republic of Kyrgyzstan, and at breakfast this morning, there was a big table filled with people from Dagestan. Wow. Okay. And Russia 
and even and I met my first Belarusian. Interesting here as well, and they're going to L.A. They they all got their CBP one appointments fairly quickly. Hmm. So, you know, this is not just the CBP one expansion. They're supposed to be expanding this. It's going to be a big cornerstone of the Title Eight regimen. Right is working for some people. I think some people will continue to use it, especially if they're in relative comfort. These people have money. This hotel's like you know, seventy dollars a night, which is a lot for around here. Right. And it's filled up with people who are, you know, comfortably waiting and they just have to wait a couple of weeks. The immigrants told me last night that the rumor around camp here is at the end of this week, CBP will expand the number of CBP-1 humanitarian permits by a thousand a week, I believe it was, a thousand a week for this area. Right. And so, you know, some of them are just hopeful that they they can just stay here and that they'll eventually get in that way. CBP-1, again, for listeners, they've heard of it, but what it is is basically like a restaurant reservation app, except that you reserve, you make a reservation for your illegal immigration into the United States. and you're, you come to a port of entry and they just let you in, So, which is illegal for the administration to do it. I wrote a piece, I forget, we've done several versions of this where uh, Biden is saying to the aliens, don't break the law, we'll do it for you. And the point of that is to basically mask the illegal crossings at the border by making it look like it's legal and to kind of make it look orderly so it disappears from news coverage. But what you're suggesting, Todd, is, and it makes sense, is that people are all basically just sort of waiting for the first sign of weakness from this administration, if you want to put it that way. And then they're going to head in. And I just am not confident this administration has, you know, the intestinal fortitude because they just don't believe that it's right to enforce the border. And so if you believe what you're doing is wrong, you're doing it grudgingly for political reasons. You're not going to present a confident, uncompromising face to those people whose calculations you want to influence. And as you've pointed out elsewhere, migrants aren't idiots. They're, they're playing the odds. And if the odds are good you're going to get in, then they're willing to spend the money and take the risks to come here. The problem is this administration you know, is just not a very good poker player, I guess, is the way to put it. Yeah. I mean, there is a path to a border where there is not these mass crowds of give-ups. If these people that I'm talking to here see that they actually are being removed under Title Eight, right, and they know that if they try it again, they could be prosecuted and some actually do get prosecuted or that they're banned for years from ever coming in legally, if that happens... I do believe that would have an impact. They, they might want to just stay with CBP-1, which is its own kind of outrage anyway. I mean, they're, they allow 99% of all applicants. They just have to be willing to wait for it, and eventually they would get in with almost no fuss, no muss. I mean, under humanitarian parole, which very few of these people, in my estimation, actually qualify for their economic migrants, but Kyrgyzstanis and... Dagestanis, Russians, and this whole sort of diverse array of nationalities are just coming here for this. 
I spoke to a Kyrgyzstani through an app that can convert it from their language to mine. And I was asking, you know, what troubles are you leaving at home? And he said, I'm not going to talk about that. That's personal. <laughs> and the reason I don't want to talk about it is because at some point I'm going to have a hearing about that. Right. And right. I don't want it to be out there. So I said, then why did you come? And he said, because the door is open. Exactly. Yep. Because the door is open. That's interesting. And you know, the interesting thing about the way you describe it is that it looks like over time, what might happen, there'll be a class divide. The people with some money will be the ones who are willing to wait for CBP1. And the people without that level of resources of money to spend will be the ones jumping the border and taking their chances. I mean, that's not the way this is supposed to work. None of this is supposed to work this way, but it's interesting that it looks like it might unfold like that, where people coming from farther away, because they have to have some more money to do that, are the ones, the only ones who will be willing to wait in line for CBP-1, whereas everyone else will, you know, wait across the river or some other way, get in and turn themselves in. Yeah, because camping out for months at a time is, it starts to wear on a family. Sure. And if the quicker way is to just cross and then you're at the bus station with a personal recognizance release or you're a safe street releasee, you know, that's far better than, I mean, that's progress. That's movement. And, you know, you can't blame them. They're going to make those kind of decisions. One last point here on the safe street, so-called safe street releases. They, if they have relatives willing to buy a bus ticket, they can just go to the bus station and leave, right? I mean, they've been let go yeah. by the Border Patrol. Yes. Okay. So it's just a different kind of being let go. Yeah, they may not want to do it that way, right? but they certainly have the freedom to do that. That's the problem with safe street releases. You don't really know anything about the people that you've safely released. Right. So let's wrap it up there. We have been hearing from our man on the spot, Todd Benzman, who is in Matamoros on the Mexican border, on the right on the other side from Texas, looking at what seems to be building what seems to be happening as Title 42 is lifted. And hopefully we'll be keeping an eye, and we will definitely be keeping an eye on the next days and even weeks, because it might take a while, as Todd mentioned, for the full implications of ending Title 42 and you know people's responses to the government's actions to actually take place and to become clear what's going on down there. So that's it for this week. This is Mark Krikorian, host of Parsing Immigration Policy. You can find us on all of the podcast apps. If the platform that you use allows ranking or rating or reviews, we'd appreciate a five-star review. And until next week, thanks for joining us. 